Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. And my name is Dr. Andrew Trasetta from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my colleague, friend, and partner in crime, Peter Bagshaw, uh, GP in Somerset and mental health lead at Somerset CCG. And Peter, what are we talking about this week? Well, we've we've done things on quite a few topics now, haven't we, Andrew? So um, exercise, we keep coming back to being out in nature as being good for our uh, emotional well-being. But we haven't really covered nutrition and food. So I thought uh, let's let's have 20 minutes or so chatting about this because there's quite a bit of science as, as well as a lot of speculation. Thanks very much. It is a complex and controversial area, and I'm sure there's sometimes vested interests that take us one way or another. But if we just look at the history of it, our bodies were developed over hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions, for roots, shoots, nuts, fruit, vegetables, raw meat, and spring water. And of course, our diet these days is very different to that. Uh, originally, our microbiome, the little microbes, the bacteria, the trillions of bacteria in our gut um, developed to work with the food that we were having then. And it may or it may not have evolved, but our microbiome and, and the health of it is, is, is really important um, to us. So that's what we started with maybe 10,000 years ago uh, with the start of agricultural communities. We moved from hunter-gathering and, and lots of meat uh, and, and fruit and other things to quite a lot of grains. And so there was the start some 10,000 years ago of, of what could be called a glucogenic uh, diet. Uh, and probably over the last 300 years since um, – Sugar in the Middle Ages was very uncommon and expensive to find. Once we started the sugarcane plantations or in, in, in um, the Caribbean, um, sugar became a, a, a major commodity. Uh, consumption rocketed. Uh, tooth decay became very uh, common. And maybe, Peter, you'll tell us about some other things that, that have happened. Uh, and we, we developed what's called a, a glucotoxic diet. So there's a historical, there's a historical perspective to start us and where would you like to take us from there peter well i, I think I mean, that's a very good uh, place to start and and really it explains a lot of our current problems because we have incredibly well developed bodies that that cope with the situation but of course we're designed for starvation so it means that if we come across um sources of food that give us a lot of energy uh and a lot of calories very quickly, we will preferentially go for those. And now, because we live in a time of abundance uh, for at least a lot of people, uh, we're, we're now struggling with these innate drives that push us to eat things that aren't good for us, both physically and mentally. I was looking at the uh, Worldometer, which does various um, causes of on and it, it's not far out of balance now that about as many people die as the, with the effects of obesity as die from malnutrition, sadly. Right. That's, that's tragic, isn't it? Um, interesting. So we were designed for a, a, a diet which had proteins and fats and carbohydrate at some times of the year. And maybe we've got, we've got a sweet tooth so that when we do find it, um, we, we crave it. How... How has our diet changed over the last 100 or 200 years and, and what problems are, are happening there? Well, as, as you've said, the, uh, it's relatively recently that we've had 
refined sugars and so on. Uh, it's certainly very recent that we've had processed food, uh, which allows food to be kept for long periods of time, but also makes it much quicker to be absorbed. So you get much higher spikes of uh, sugar. And it's only in fairly recent times uh, that we've, we've been able to, to have food basically whenever we want it. There have been other things as well that have happened. So back in the 60s, Ansel Keys and various other people uh, were looking at why heart disease was becoming so much commoner. And they came up with the cholesterol hypothesis that it was due to high cholesterol in the blood. And that was because we were eating too many saturated fats. And that's still a message that a, a lot of us uh, hear today with low fat everything. But actually, their concern about that is that in going to low fat, it means we're having more carbohydrates. And actually, that may drive other problems. Um, when Ansel Keys was researching and writing in the 60s, was there a chap called John Yudkin as well, who was doing a sort of slightly different research? Pure White and Deadly. And it was the book he wrote uh, very famously and um, was marginalised. And What was that about? That was about sugar. Right. Uh, white sugar, yes. Uh, and, and certainly... Uh, as a result of, of his studies, sugar was, was blamed for a lot of ills and for various reasons that partly political, partly financial, partly uh, misguided or well-meaning, um, his, his work was suppressed. And there is now certainly a view that we, we blame fats for a lot of things that, that sugar and simple carbohydrates uh, should take the blame for. And certainly in terms of physical health, and I know we're dealing primarily with emotional health, but one of the main drivers of ill health at the moment uh, is metabolic syndrome, and that's driven by hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, whereby chronically high intake of sugar and simple carbohydrates drives the body to produce lots more insulin. And that in turn drives high blood pressure, heart disease, obesity, and various other things. Interesting. And biologically, that makes sense as well, not just from the inflammation point of view. Um, but uh, our bodies were developed, as, as we said earlier, over a long time, and they were developed before electric light when we had to live by the timing of the year. And so in winter, food would be scarce. And well, we weren't bears, but we might well spend a lot of time um, resting quietly rather than expending a lot of energy and maybe sleep. Whereas in high summer, day length is short cortisol levels are high, we crave carbohydrate and maybe put on uh, weight ready for the winter, put on kilos, certainly like um, brown and bears and, and, uh, uh, and bears in the Arctic and others do, they put on weight and store it ready for the long time of hibernation. And yet we have electric light which keeps us going for long days all the year. And I don't know about you, Peter, but certainly there's a time in the evening when I can suddenly get the munchies. Um, mm. And if I go to sleep before that, or I go to bed or, or wind down before that, there's not a problem. But there suddenly comes a point when I crave food. What, what's that about? And, and, it's, and it's not fats. It's, not, it's, it's, it's carbohydrates I crave. Absolutely. It's something I've experienced personally, like you, and, and see it a lot in patients um, where they have a very high sugar diet, is that you get this initial sugar high in the bloodstream, which makes you feel full and makes you feel good. But then your body reacts to that by producing more insulin. That pulls your sugar levels right down. So then you feel incredibly hungry 
And uh, people use the phrase hangry, don't they? Hungry and angry. Uh, and, and so people try and compensate for that by then having another sugar rush. Uh, and, and they get into this vicious cycle of, of cycling up and down with their blood sugars and their insulin, which is very damaging for our physical health, but also our mental health. Interesting. Um, I, I certainly remember a long day at work and I just sort of think I'll just have a shortbread um, finger on the way home because I rather like shortbread. I cannot have one shortbread. I will have six or ten and I don't feel any fuller after ten than I do after one. Mind you, you try eating ten boiled eggs. Um, I'm not mm. suggesting, listeners, please, I'm not suggesting this is something you should actually try and do. But I think that most of us are full after one or two. So it, it's, uh, it, it works in different ways on us. So how about um, how this is affecting, um, uh, you mentioned briefly how it affects dementia and depression. Do we know how it does and what's going on um, and, and what, 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 what effect low-carbohydrate diets have on the brain? Yes, and they've been around now for, what, maybe 20 years with Atkins and various other things uh, and advocated now by uh, people like Joe Wicks. And it seems to be that, that this is a way of stopping that yo-yo uh, feeling of blood sugar going up and down. So it seems to be a much more sustainable um, way of, of controlling weight and controlling uh, our, our, our diet. There's a lot of speculation. And I think we're now into the realms of things we're not quite sure about. So you, you mentioned microbiome and there, there's some evidence that the fluctuations in blood sugar affect our microbiome. That in, in turn causes inflammation within the bloodstream and that there is a link between uh, low level inflammation and mental health problems in particular uh, depression and and also possibly to a lesser extent schizophrenia so people will have heard of a ketogenic diet which is a very low carb carbohydrate diet and that's got some interesting evidence around it I'm not suggesting it's right for everybody at all, but just as a way of looking at the effect of low carbohydrate on the brain. So we know that ketogenic diets, for instance, can help in children who have resistant epilepsy. There's some evidence around ketogenic diets being useful in resistant schizophrenia. And more recently, there's quite a lot of evidence that in early dementia, a ketogenic diet is helpful in restoring brain function. And I, Andrew, I know you've got quite a lot of uh, information and knowledge on this. Well, I, I, not, not hugely, but I have to say that when I stopped wheat uh, several years ago, one of the first things I noticed that was that my brain was much clearer and then heartburn stopped and various other things happened. And two weeks in, I realised actually that I was no longer craving carbohydrate. And the reason I, I, I stopped that um, was because I read a book by an American neurologist called um, David Perlmutter called um, Grain Brain. I think it's some, um, I think it's Perlmutter, Grain Brain, which is just fascinating. And it just, he, he's a neurologist who treats a wide range of neurological disease, um, conditions. And most of them, or for many of his patients, he will say, just, just try a low wheat diet. And there would be interesting levels of improvement across the board for, for many things that you and I, Peter, might just straight go for conventional approaches. And um, we know that we need 
X medication for epilepsy or Y medication for other conditions. And here's a neurologist actually making the terrain, making the soil, making what's going on inside our microbiome and, and maybe with the, um, some of the inflammatory proteins in wheat actually not attacking some of the nerve cells. Very interesting. Um, so there is some science behind it, um, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating and many people find that helpful. And certainly I can attest to that on a personal basis. And it's, it's one of the things that's made me interested in this particular area is that uh, maybe five years ago, I thought I, I really must shed some weight. And I tried various things and, and came to what I then thought was this slightly odd uh, low carb approach and thought, okay, well, I've tried everything else. I'll give this a try. Um, and it did indeed make me lose two and a half stone, which is fantastic. Um, but I discovered along the way lots of other incidental side effects. So I was getting joint pain, for instance, and assumed I'd just follow my father in ending up with joint replacements, which had happened to him quite young. Um, various other things that you, you just put down to aging. And a lot of those actually went away on a low-carb diet. And that, that mental sharpness is absolutely something that I can attest to. Uh, it felt as though you, you'd gained about five or ten years of life. So it, it certainly worked for me. Again, you know, I'm not saying it will work for everybody. I think the important thing is to avoid this metabolic syndrome and obesity, which causes so many griefs. But it seems to, to be something that a lot of people are finding successful. I think it's great to hear that, Peter. I think we're on fairly safe ground saying that. And another thing that we're on pretty safe ground is talking about certain important deficiency syndromes that we would learn about at medical school. Uh, and there's one called B12. And tell me, tell me what can happen in B12 deficiency. It's a, a very insidious uh, condition. It can mimic lots of other things. So uh, it classically causes nerve problems. So it can cause nerve pain, numbness, uh, odd sensations, but it can also affect uh, certain mental conditions. So depression and in particular dementia, it's one of the things that we test for in doing screening for dementia because B12 deficiency uh, is, is certainly something that can mimic that. And it is something that we're seeing, particularly with the rise of a vegan diets because it's it's quite difficult to get enough b12 uh, in a vegan diet so most people who are on a vegan diet will, will take b12 supplements as well but it is that something that can also be seen where the body stops being able to absorb b12 which is why it's called pernicious anemia because that you can't put right uh, by dietary causes you, you need a, an injection so b12 deficiency is certainly something to look out for and pernicious anemia either happens because of long-term gastritis or it's an, it's an autoimmune syndrome, if I remember rightly, from my textbooks years ago. And the other reason why people can get something like that is if you have a gastric bypass or if you have a Roux-en-Y uh, re-plumbing of your, of your intestines, then you may actually not secrete the, is it the intrinsic factor from the distal stomach wall or the duodenum? Yeah. Yeah, parietal cells, I think, isn't it? Yes. And so you don't end up absorbing it in the, in the terminal ileum. So if you've had Crohn's disease and some of your ileum removed, then you, again, may not uh, absorb. So there are some syndromes or some conditions where a B12 is very, very low, where, where actually you can, you can have injections for those, and that would be a medical thing. But a lot of people would actually find help from supplementing from a sort of a marginal low. And 
um, especially in those conditions such as pernicious anemia or um, or Crohn's where you can't absorb, then taking B12 tablets by mouth doesn't really work. But you can actually buy a spray, which um, you spray under your tongue, and that goes into a different circulation in the body. So anything that goes into our mouths and down into our stomachs is dealt with by the liver, whereas there is an alternative circulation that you can absorb. Um, I think this is the sublingual method, Peter. Mm, yeah, absolutely, as used for angina and things like that as, as a way of getting drugs into the body very quickly. Indeed. Peter, how much time or how many months or hours did you spend learning about nutrition at medical school? Um, I'm still learning. <laughs> well, I have to confess, I went to Guy's Hospital in London, and I think we learned less than a day on nutrition. So Absolutely. We are, as a profession, handicapped by our knowledge, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I had about the same experience of you, and actually a lot of what I was taught was wrong. Um, and certainly there was nothing about the science of leptins and ghrelins and uh, all these other enzymes that are associated with satiety. So I think unless you're somebody who takes an interest this, in this um, outside of your medical curriculum, I have to say, I think most most doctors are not the best people to advise on nutrition. I, I hope I'm not being unkind on, on my colleagues in saying this. Um, but would you agree, Andrew? Is that fair? Speaking as one of the colleagues, I would put my hand up and, and agree with you entirely that those of us who've only had any traditional training, probably, particularly those of us who are, have reached a certain age, um, won't have much training. Having said that, there is a new specialty or a couple of new specialties um, coming along. And one is functional medicine, which looks at nutrition. And there's different aspects looked at by lifestyle nutrition. And there's a British Society of Lifestyle uh, uh, Medicine, which is, which is training doctors in, in these areas. So I, I think um, our profession are moving forwards on that substantially. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that affect nutrition and food. I, I sort of learned about carbohydrates and proteins and fats. Nobody ever told me that if you eat slowly and you chew for a long time, it actually makes the digestion more efficient. And I'm, of course, with carbohydrates, we will produce saliva, which has amylase in. And so that's mixed in the mouth if we chew our potatoes or, or whatever it should be. Up, up to 30 times, I think, monks would chew their food in order to digest it properly. Um, and then it, there's proper partial digestion is starting to happen with that amylase before it's, it's neutralized by the acid in the stomach, which is there, of course, to kill, kill um, bacteria and bugs. And then in, in, the, uh, in the duodenum and ileum with the alkaline um, fluid from the, um, from the pancreas uh, it, and the amylase, pancreatic amylase, it starts again. Um, and the other thing that can happen is that by chewing slowly, we actually slow down all our organism onto more parasympathetic because many of us eat too quickly and we eat in a hurry and it's just another thing to put, put in. And um, I think there's a Chinese saying, the stomach has no teeth. And yet we, we put the food down quickly, hoping that it will get digested properly. I don't know if you've got any comments on any of that, Peter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're talking about where you can get uh, reliable information. from. I think it's really difficult. So uh, if, we, if we're saying that, that medical professionals are, are not 
fantastic. Nutritionists are, are great at deficiencies and things like that. But in terms of optimizing nutrition for mental health, uh, I think actually uh, mind is probably the best source. So if people go to uh, mind.org UK, uh, information, support, tips for everyday living, food and mood, about food and mood is the link. We'll put that up uh, later. And, and that gives some really useful tips. And c- can, we, can we give some good news? Yes, please. That'd be great. Because uh, we tended to be a little bit scientific and maybe a little bit uh, negative. So there, there are some things that actually make us feel good and are good for our, our physical health and our mental health. Uh, dark chocolate is, is one of those. I thought you were going to say sprouts. Oh, well, yes. Okay. I, I'll say eggs as well. So eggs are fantastic. They've now been shown that they actually reduce strokes and heart attacks and they give you stable blood sugars and all the rest of it. So uh, again, there's a bit of a hangover uh, against eggs, but, but no, eat, eat eggs. But when you've had your eggs, um, have some dark chocolate, not the, not the cheaper, lots of fat and uh, vegetable oils added uh, milk chocolate, but if you get the dark 70%, and it's, it's more expensive, but um, supermarkets do their own brands that I think is just as good. And, and that's got uh, flavonoids in it, which is great for our physical health. It improves blood flow. It improves our mental sharpness and cognition. And it's also got serotonin. And we've talked about serotonin before, haven't we? So it's a natural antidepressant. So it's something that's good for our, our mood, good for our physical health, uh, and, and we enjoy. And there, there aren't many of those things around, are there? There aren't. The old phrase is, you are what you eat, uh, and uh, so we should be eating natural things. But I think, uh, I think well, chocolate is natural. Most, most foods come from a natural source originally, but I think chocolate is a, a definite bonus and a, an extra that we should all be allowed to have occasionally. Absolutely. And, and there are various other things that are good as well. It, we talk jokingly about sprouts, but again, uh, green leafy veg, I think, is, is universally good. So it fills you physically. Uh, it requires a lot of chewing. It has very few calories in, and it's got all sorts of trace elements and things in which are fantastic for you. So, so green leafy veg, I would strongly um, advise. Is there anything that you want to well, add? Well, definitely, definitely those, any vegetables, uh, root vegetables as well, because when, when our microbiome is fed appropriately, actually it, it develops bacteria which break down um, vegetable fibre into medium-chain fatty acids as, uh, and sometimes to complex carbohydrates. But there's a lot of, lot of fatty acids produced which are actually great food for the body without giving the blood sugar swings. And and just to be a little bit careful on that. So if you look at, uh, again, people can Google David Unwin infographics, and that shows you the the sugar equivalents of uh, of food, including vegetables. And some of the root vegetables are quite high in simple carbohydrates. But uh, I I agree. I think real food, um, avoiding processed food, people think it's all fatty and new age and so on. But I certainly see real results in people. And I've seen real results in myself. Indeed. I think we've got to about the end there, Peter, because it's a controversial and complex area. I think we've strayed a bit into uh, controversy, but I think you've helped us greatly in demystifying a lot of the complexity by looking at basic principles and looking at what the science is saying as well. So can I give you the last word, Peter? 
I think I think my last word would be for people who may be a bit skeptical about this: give it a try. Um, there are certain well-known books out there. Joe Wicks is is one that deals has a lot of good sense on this, so it's very readily available. Um, we're not getting any any money by plugging Joe Wicks, but he does a fantastic job in all sorts of areas. So just give this a try. Go if you think we're fatty, try cutting out the processed food, cutting out the sugar, reducing the carbs, going for real food, and it doesn't have to be expensive to do that, and just see how it makes you feel after a few weeks. And I, I suspect that you'll be a convert. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, fatty, the, the right fatty acids are important. So what you and I might have been brought up on, and some of our listeners, um, cod liver oil provides the right omega-3 fatty acids. But what, what a strange taste to leave in our listeners' mouths. <laughs> we'll, we'll go back to the chocolate as a follow-up. Absolutely. Take the taste away. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.